0: I don't want to dwell too much on the introduction because we have a tight schedule. We'd rather just hear from our panelists. Um, but I do want to say I'm, I am really almost borderline giddy to be uh, uh, moderating a panel featuring, uh, really, I think, sort of the four horsemen of the privacy apocalypse. This is, um, this is the national security journalism equivalent of having um, the Justice League with no Aquaman on one stage. Um, if you look back on sort of the summer of Snowden, the revelations not just this summer, but over the last few years about NSA, uh, FBI, government surveillance, you'll find probably 90% of the most significant stories coming out of uh, these four reporters and the teams they're associated with. So it's just an incredible privilege to have them here at the Cato Institute. Um, So just very quickly, again, their extensive and impressive bios are in uh, the packet that uh, is on the registration desk, but Spencer Ackerman um, is the... uh, National Security Editor of The Guardian, and uh, a National Magazine Award winner for his work on uh, Islamophobic uh, training materials at the FBI uh, at Wired, also a, a dear friend of mine, I'm uh, privileged to say. Uh, Bart Gelman is uh, uh, again, uh, been doing incredible work at The Washington Post. Uh, is the author of uh, Angler, a book about Dick Cheney, and a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, as well. Uh, Siobhan Gorman is uh, the intelligence correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, uh, also a uh, a Delta Chi uh, Award winner for excellence in journalism for her work uh, at the Baltimore Sun on NSA surveillance. And uh, Charlie Savage is, of course, a national security correspondent for the New York Times and, again, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for his uh, excellent work at the Boston Globe on presidential signing statements. Um, So I want to start, I guess, by just sort of running down the line I assume many of you if you're watching are already familiar with our panelists excellent excellent work but I do want to just start by kind of inviting them to to say what they think is the most interesting aspect of the surveillance architecture that's been unveiled from their own reporting not necessarily you know just the stories you've personally broken. Sometimes the more interesting details are in follow-up coverage, where you find a, a wrinkle that wasn't in the, the first big story. But I'm hoping we can just kind of get a survey of this incredible deluge of stories. I mean, just like an NSA analyst, it's easy to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose of data. Uh, and, and But let's try and sort of sum up what we've learned and why it matters. Spencer? Uh,
1: sure. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Cato for hosting this. Uh, particularly for my my friend Julian, um, who uh, I would consider the witch king of the privacy Nazgul, (laughs) Um, uh, these amazing colleagues who I'm privileged to be on this panel with. Um, I thought I would take um, something of an institutional uh, approach to to Julian's question and to just go through it really quickly. Um, Since we've uh, been reporting on uh, the revelations that uh, you've read from the NSA over the last four months, um, we've repeatedly gotten, and I'm sure my colleagues here have gotten as well, the pushback that all of this material is decontextualized, it's twisted, we don't understand it, and we're not fairly and accurately presenting it to the American people. And then um, maybe a month or so ago, uh, in response to a, a Freedom of Information Act request lawsuit, we found in 2009 that the FISA court came very close to questioning the the viability of this program at all, the bulk phone records collection, found violations, quote, on a daily basis, that for more than two years, call records of Americans were, quote, not subject to any FBI investigation, and whose call detail information could not otherwise been legally captured in bulk, uh, was the subject of what the the NSA had been doing. the, the judge on this, visa, on, on this court, Reggie Walton, said that uh, he would spend basically much of 2009 shutting the program down, stopping analysts from being able to access this information until he was confident that safeguards had been placed on it. And later that year, uh, right before a crucial surveillance vote, uh, the NSA and the intelligence community more generally uh, sent to Congress Uh, not the secret committee that oversees the the intelligence uh, community, but to all members of Congress, if they chose to read this document, a description of what they considered compliance issues. And I read... There have been a number of technical compliance problems and human implementation errors in these two bulk collection programs discovered as a result of Justice Department reviews and internal NSA oversight. However, neither the department, NSA, nor the FISA Court has found any intentional or bad faith violations. They describe it as, as being merely technical glitches and, and, and other sort of uh, trivial things Now, make the judgment for yourself about how accurate and contextualized that is, but I've come to learn in my four months working for The Guardian that if I filed something like that as a description of what had really happened in terms of uh, violations of the rules around these uh, secret surveillance practices, uh, my two very good editors, Janine Gibson and Stuart Miller, would give me what I've now learned is called a bollocking. Um, And so I'll pass that over now.
2: Thank you. Uh Before Edward Snowden uh, made his name public and before the first disclosures, uh, he told uh, me and Laura Poitras, who were working together on those early stories, uh, that his greatest fear was that it would all be for nothing, that he would take these huge risks and uh, make disclosures or, in fact, be preempted. Uh, uh, And even if he made the disclosures, there would be no debate, that it would be a sensation for uh, a day or two, it would focus on the terrible security breach, and those awful leakers, uh, and the debate would move on. Uh, I would have to say that uh, Snowden succeeded beyond his wildest dreams and be, uh, behind, be, beyond any reasonable expectation in prompting a national and international debate over the boundaries of surveillance in democratic society. Uh, 12 years after 9-11, the American people have been demonstrated, uh, finally, to be prepared to have that conversation. Uh, I'm astonished that, as far as I know, there's never been an opinion poll that said uh, that Snowden uh, did more harm than good, uh, in terms of of a majority. Uh, And I'm astonished at how far the political institutions and the commercial markets have responded, both in ways that Senator Wyden described. And what this reflects is that uh, for some years now, we have increasingly been living behind one-way mirrors, in which we are more and more transparent to our government, and by the way, to the private sector. uh, And they are more and more opaque to us. Uh, And the lack of transparency uh, has greatly inhibited in ways that everyone would be familiar with uh, when you think about Either uh, political markets or economic ones they 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 have they have broken the markets There was no market for privacy you could not shop for example among major internet or email providers uh, for privacy because it was Substantially not possible to find out exactly what they did with your information even if you were the kind of person who read through all those terms of service and the uh, likewise uh, in the political system, it simply was not possible to know in the uh, if a, as a member of public, and barely possible as a member of Congress to know what the NSA was doing. Uh, and I, I would say actually not possible uh, as a member of Congress even because the you know you're talking about the the secret work of tens of thousands of people uh, versus uh, the sort of the, basically the, the part time work of members of Congress who have lots of other responsibilities and relatively speaking, very, very small staffs, uh, which even if cleared, uh, can't possibly look at everything. I mean, just as one example, the uh, the black budget, the secret intelligence budget of the US intelligence community, which had not been revealed in 70, it's 70 years uh, of its existence, uh, ran to thousands of pages of dense, dense technical uh, and operational uh, prose with uh, there there are, I don't know, maybe half a dozen staffers uh, whose job at, at, at peak uh, budget review time is to uh, go through that. You can imagine what the limitations are. Uh, I think what you've seen is uh, that you know, it's one yet another demonstration that unaccountable, in a practical way, secret power uh, always leads, not so much to corruption, because that's not what I'm seeing here, uh, as, as to uh, a sort of a lack of balance, that well-meaning people doing what they see as their jobs to protect you cross lines that if you knew about them, you would not want them to cross, or at least that they ought to be subject to debate. I mean, uh, Michael Kinsley famously uh, says uh, in most of these cases, the scandal is not what's illegal. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the thing that ought to be debated is what's happening formally, lawfully, behind closed doors uh you know, at the aspen security forum in july about a month into this thing by and i would prefer to say an act of god i'd been chosen months earlier to chair a uh, panel like this with two former directors of national intelligence who were therefore my captives on the stage for an hour uh and uh, and had to address all this stuff and the atmosphere in the room and and among the several hundred attendees who were very senior figures in general in the national security establishment, was bafflement. You know, how, how can it be that, uh, that we're being accused of misbehavior? Why don't the American people trust us? We're obviously working on their behalf. Uh, and I think they genuinely, uh, they genuinely felt that way. And they believed that people like uh, Senator Wyden had already lost the political debate when they tried to amend the FISA Amendments Act to, to change it, to limit some of the behavior that he was talking about. Uh, and what I'm saying is that with the disclosure of documents and with the reporting that that has enabled, uh, because not all of it is coming from documents. I mean, you have, You have, for example, on this panel just this week, uh, Sh- Siobhan Gorman has, has done remarkable work on the uh, what's actually happening at, at the NSA's uh, Utah facilities, and that's based on interviews uh, and documents, but not from Snowden. You're having a, a kind of a rebirth of enterprise reporting Uh, on surveillance, Uh, and and I want to talk a little bit more about another piece, sort of two other pieces of the transparency point. One is that with each new disclosure, we are learning that the institutional checks and balances uh, for which they've made so many claims uh, uh, are not, in a practical sense, uh, very big limits on what the NSA and the intelligence community are doing. Uh, the, uh, the chief judge of the FISA court, or successive chief judges, uh, have given two on-the-record interviews in the history of the court, both as it happens to my colleague Carol Lenig, and the most recent one, which accompanied my story on uh, thousands of NSA violations of its own rules. In the most recent one, uh, Chief Judge Reggie Walton told Carol uh, that the court has no independent power to investigate what the NSA is doing. It relies entirely on what the government tells the court. Uh, and he he also said that he doesn't have uh, the technological support to understand in any full sense what the NSA is doing. It has to rely on the representations of the government about what things mean. Uh, it's also the case that even in the you know recently famous 2009 uh, FISA court decision, which we've been hearing about today, which found systematic violation of court orders, which is about as serious a thing as you can get. First of all, d- no one was held accountable for those violations. Second of all, the same opinion substantially expanded the NSA's power, which is a much less noticed feature of that opinion. Uh, first of all, the court granted the NSA's uh, request to change the way it uh, it starts counting the time period during which it can hold on to uh, the records collected about Americans uh, from five to uh, up to six years. Uh, and they keep talking about five years, but it's, it's five years from the expiration of each year's order uh, allowing the collection, so not five years from the date of collection. So anything collected early in the period of that order gets held six years. No one happens to mention that. Uh, and the other one is that that was the opinion that authorized the NSA to do what Senator Wyden calls the backdoor searches. That is to say, uh, the court supervises collection. Uh, and the court found that the, its supervision of collection and, it's super, and, it's, uh, and, and the way that the uh, targeting and minimization rules were written, and this is all very complicated, did not in any way limit the government from searching for your name in the database of collected materials. Uh, there are similar limits on Congress as a, as a check on power. Uh, you now have uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board and the DNI's advisory board. Um, Uh, one of which didn't exist and the other one uh, didn't function during the entirety of the Obama administration, Uh, neither of them has or is permitted to hire uh, sort of high-level technical advisory staff that is capable of, that that will then be cleared to know exactly what the NSA is doing. So these uh, essentially lay people who are knowledgeable about government and all kinds of things uh, are contending with NSA explanations of infinitely complex programs on their own. And finally, there's the in terms of transparency, there, there are the government's public statements. You have, and I have a pretty high threshold for using the word lie, but you, you have the March 12th example that was described earlier about Clapper, in which he, you know, what Senator Wyden may not have mentioned, I don't recall, is that uh, his staff said, day after tomorrow, I'm going to ask you this question in the hearing. And then day after tomorrow, he asks the question in the hearing and he gets the answer he got, uh, uh, which uh, uh, Clapper uh, afterwards said was the least untruthful answer he could give. Uh, You also have a very large number of other statements that either are clearly factually false or misleading uh, from the government during the course of this debate. uh, General Alexander, the director of the NSA, gave an answer about the Utah facility to a Fox News reporter before the first Snowden uh, revelations in which he said, it, you know, the NSA does not hold data on Americans. Uh, there have been a, there's been a periodic release of of statistics that are meant to uh, reassure. Again, before the Snowden revelations, uh, and I can't remember the exact details, but around 2009, uh, the Justice Department said, don't worry about the way we're using Section 215. Uh, we've only used it 20 or 30 times in the past year. And what they don't mention is that four of those times are sufficient to collect several trillion records. That's with a T. So, uh, you know, when you talk about 20 or 30 uh, when it's really several trillion, you know, that has have an influence on the public debate. Likewise, they've said that they, uh, in the past year, uh, searched the collected call logs of Americans uh, fewer than 300 times, though they said the number has varied. Now, what we've learned is that when they say the number varies, it doesn't vary downward. Uh, That in uh, in previous years, uh, the 300 figure compared to several tens of thousands uh, on the one hand, and that because of the way they use that data, which is contact chaining, which is looking at not only who you called, but who the people you called called and who those people called, Uh, 300 uh, can, by fairly conservative estimates, get you out to over a million. Uh, As I say, uh, more than a million people have their records examined and their their networks of associates mapped uh, when you start the query uh, with 300, uh, for the same reason that famously uh, six degrees of separation are sufficient to connect anyone to anyone else on the planet. It's an exponential figure. So I'll stop there and uh, wait for questions later.
3: Thanks. Siobhan? Great. Well, it's, um, it's been a remarkable several months, really. And I must confess that having tracked this issue now for quite a few years, I was initially quite surprised that it gained so much currency because, I mean, we watched this – debate before in uh, 2005 and 2006. And uh, essentially, what started out as congressional outrage basically resulted in Congress expanding NSA surveillance powers uh, in 2008. And then the issue had basically just been dormant for uh, about five years. And um, it's so it's been really interesting to me that this moment is different for a number of reasons. Um, The most obvious is that Certainly, more time has passed since 9 11. Uh, there are more concerns about other types of issues, domestic issues, uh, the economy, et cetera. Um, and even the president uh, has talked about sort of contemplating a time when there isn't a war with Al Qaeda. Um, but that's also kind of. Um, hit at a time when there's this growing distrust of government. And I think that sort of that confluence of events um, may be at least part of the explanation as to why um, this issue has gained so much currency, uh, particularly with all of these other major issues going on in in the world and why it's had so much staying power. Um, I also think that a piece of it has to do with um, a real component of transparency, which is uh, the difference this time with a number of the stories that that have stemmed from from the Snowden disclosures, is that we're actually seeing documents. I mean, the the phone call record program wasn't unknown. It was reported by USA Today in 2006. But actually seeing a FISA court order um, can tell you a lot more about the parameters of the program. Um, It may not tell you everything, and there are still some mysteries. It remains mysterious to me. You know sort of the decision-making process at least that went into why NSA would require uh, a broad collection uh, from Verizon that that could certainly include cell phone location data and yet NSA still says that they choose not to do that Um, and and I think that that's obviously something that Senator Wyden is is asking about as well. We've also seen, I think, as, as Bart has mentioned, that the Snowden revelations have kind of shaken the trees. I mean, it's certainly we've seen quite a bit of information come from the documents uh, that, that he's shared with reporters. Um, but, you know, it's also, um, you know, prompted other types of of reporting down down other avenues. Certainly, Charlie's done a lot of that as well. Um, And uh, I think, uh, at least equally importantly, it has forced government disclosures about a lot of things that we would not have otherwise known about, probably not even from the Snowden revelations. And a lot of people have referred to the 2009 uh, FISA court um, uh, rulings. And that's exactly sort of what I have in mind. And in fact, I I think that those rulings really reinforce um, a storyline that hasn't been as as focused on as much, um, which is that NSA is obviously an extraordinarily potent uh, surveillance organization. But what we've seen both in some of these FISA court rulings that really call into question NSA's management of these programs, um, as well as additional reporting, is that NSA's uh, sort of stewardship and, and management of these enormous um, uh, surveillance powers uh, is is not always done properly um, and you know NSA's main defense into in, as to why these things aren't necessarily managed properly is that they don't understand it well enough um, and so you know that I think that 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 starts to raise a lot of questions, and, and you almost get to a point where you say, "Well, I mean, has NSA become too big to fail um, you know i mean it's it's a giant organization, a giant budget with with giant powers um, and you know as, as as Bart was referring to, you know you even look through some of these uh, FISA court decisions where they're really um you know, weighing the fact that they're extraordinarily angry with NSA for uh, mismanaging these things, and at the same time, um, you know, struggling with the notion of well, we can't really shut this down. What do we do? Um, and you know, I mean, in the in the wake of these revelations, I found myself talking again with um, with sources about uh, domestic activities that were causing concern, um, and you know, with with a little digging, um, learned that, for example. Uh, You know the the NSA was tapping the US internet backbone in a a rather extraordinary way. I mean, it had created sort of this multi-stage process where it has relationships with uh, US telecommunications companies that basically give their surveillance system coverage of 75% of the US. Now, that doesn't mean NSA is looking at all of that traffic, but they can ask the telecommunications companies to do a first set of filtering and pass a bunch of information on to them, and then they can do another cut. Um, Um, But the reason why people brought that to my attention was they were concerned that there would be a lot of solely domestic communications that were scooped up in that. Um, And then what was interesting was um, after finally pulling that story together and and putting it out there, the very next day we see this FISA court decision uh, from 2009 where they acknowledged that this quote-unquote upstream um, collection uh, collected as many as 56,000 purely domestic communications. Um, and again, NSA's defense was, well, we didn't really fully appreciate how the technology had changed, you know, and, and how our systems were interfacing with that, and so it was all accidental. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, not understanding your own systems is a pretty odd defense. Um, <laughs> Not not long after that, um, you know, we saw another set of FISA court documents released um, where, again, the defense was, well, we didn't realize that uh, we weren't we weren't uh, properly explaining to the court the way that the phone record program was working. Um, and of course, when the court finally understood how it was working, they were pretty upset to learn that, you know, a lot of the numbers against which initial searches were being done weren't fully vetted for sort of, you know, being sufficiently, uh, suspicious and warranting, uh, further investigation. Um, and, uh, you know, then this week we, we, we did a story that found that NSA's stewardship of the, its own sort of prized possession, this Utah data center, um, you know, was beset by management problems and having electrical failures so that they're having, I mean, it's been, it's been a year since um, it, they were supposed to already be starting to, to plug in their computers there. Uh, and they're having, you know, they've had 10 fiery explosions in their electrical systems that have prevented them from launching this thing. Um, so, you know, I do think that it, it warrants a little bit more exploration um, to look at sort of when you take all of this together, um, you see both NSA's determination to collect uh, enormous amounts of information uh, and and gain access to, to even, even more information beyond what it actually collects in its system, uh, but is having extraordinary difficulty uh, managing it properly. Um, I also think that... Um, you know, the fact that so much of that type of information has actually been disclosed by the government on its own, I mean, albeit with prodding from, from FOIA uh, requests from, from uh, organizations, certainly um, shows that the Snowden revelations have had, you know, sort of second order impacts. It's not, it's not just the documents that he's putting out there, but it's the, the fallout, I think, has really been um, almost as extraordinary as, as some of the revelations.
4: Okay uh, so to round out I guess the initial um, statements and some I you know have enjoyed even just listening to this already, so that's great. Um, I guess just to break things down a, a little bit, as I think about what has come out since um, the first Snowden revelations, um, it sort of breaks into two categories right there's the, the initial revelation of the bulk collection of call metadata which uh, became Clear with the Guardian's publication of the the FISA court order, and then, it, it sort of, as that was still being digested, then th- we plunged into the world of FISA Amendments Act 702 surveillance with the, the stories about Prism and all that followed that. And as I've tried to think about, <coughs> um, and all this has been sort of mixed together, and then, and, and to some extent, as more and more and more documents have come out over the last uh, few months it's an overwhelming amount of information and it's sort of hard to categorize sometimes. Like what is merely interesting about something that we already basically knew, what is truly a revelation, what is technical details that don't have an obvious uh, policy implication versus what is of great constitutional significance. Um, it's it's just been a very great mass of information sometimes. And that's one of the things I worry about in my own coverage and in our industry's coverage of Uh, the gush of information we're just notwithstanding the WikiLeaks moment before this as a general matter we're used to having the document the fact not you know all the documents and all the facts as as a a geyser um, and trying to make sense of them but the in trying to separate what's truly important um, one way to start that is to think about you know what is that where is it where the system wanted this to happen and where is it where that's in question, right? And so, the unusual interpretation, the non-obvious interpretation, or in Senator Wyden's, you know, words, the secret law interpretation of Patriot Two Fifteen, and the notion that relevance can mean everything as long as you only look at what's relevant later, um, is something that it's not obvious to me Congress understood that it was doing that when it passed the Patriot Act, and that calls into question its legitimacy, right? In a way that. in broad strokes, what was happening with 702 in the FISA Amendments Act and the Protect America Act before that in uh, 07 and 08, is kind of what Congress thought it was doing. And then you just query how it's being implemented, but it's not a revelation in the sense of, um, is this legal at all on a statutory basis? Um, And for that reason, I think that the 215 uh, bulk, call metadata revelation is the most important, it, the first remains the most important to this day. Uh, but that said, there's, there's there's a place in the 702 world in particular um, <clears throat> where I think there's also that question of did Congress understand it was doing this, right? So Congress wanted to say that surveillance targeted at someone who's not a citizen who's overseas uh, for foreign intelligence purposes does not require a warrant even if it's taking place, inside the United States because that's never how FISA worked before and the fact that telecommunications networks grew up (coughs) so that it was increasingly easier or even only possible to do that kind of foreign collection on US soil didn't mean that they wanted warrants to apply in that situation. Uh, But when the uh, government was writing the rules and got the FISA court to approve them, Rules that, uh, thanks to Edward Snowden, we've now also now had a chance to look at. Uh, it turns out that they were interpreting the word "target" in a non-obvious way, because w- when I use the word "target," I think of directed at. Right, I'm targeting my missile or my bullet or my arrow at the subject that I'm looking at, and they certainly are targeting in term in that sense most of the time when they are going up on the email account or the phone number of someone who's overseas and sometimes an American might communicate with that person and as a result, that the Americans' communications would be collected without a warrant. Um, but the targeting was overseas. But it turns out that also they got the FISA court to approve uh, the about the target search. Uh, and what this is, is the, if someone is communicating across the border, if an American is communicating across the border, not with the target, but with someone else who's not on the radar screen of the government, but is talking about that target, uh, the FISA court has approved uh, the government to suck up that communication without a warrant on US soil too. And of course, because the, the communicants are not on the radar screen, unlike when they're directly sitting on the target's email account or phone number, that means they have to search systematically to find those messages, where in the content of the communication, they're discussing the target, but the surveillance itself is not targeted are directed at the target, and so the part. Of this is so it gets in the weeds fast, right? But in the discussion of these two worlds, the two fifteen world and the seven zero two world, there's been a big but for the discussion of most of them, right? Two fifteen is bulk. It's indiscriminate. It's all Americans content, but it's our, our, our records. But it's not content, right? It's only metadata. It's only logs. So that's a, you know it's not that alarming. And in seven zero two, yes, the content of some Americans communications is being collected without a warrant, but that's only if they happen to be you know, communicating with a foreign target, and so that's discriminant in some ways. It's not, um, it's not systematic. But in this about-the-target search world, those buts are breached. They are, so The revelation is uh, bulk content searching of Americans' international messages without a warrant on US soil in a systematic way. And it's just an example, this is one that I'm more familiar with, but it's an example of the ways in which things that look like clean categories or clean words where we all understand what they mean, words like collect, words like target, uh, increasingly slip through our fingers and in a way we see now more clearly than maybe three or four months ago before the Snowden revelations. Even now you you hear members of Congress complaining repeatedly They don't know when they get an answer to something whether that's really the answer because they don't know if there's a secret lexicon in which words mean something different uh, to the NSA than they mean in ordinary usage that's been shown to be the case over and over again. Is it the case in this time or the the famous, you know, elusive comments, we're not doing X under this program or using this authority, you know, full stop, leaving open the question, are they doing X under some other program or some other authority, Uh, it's very hard to know whether you really know what you think you know in this world. So I'll stop there.
0: I will note that the, uh, I think the Electronic Frontier Foundation has somewhere on their website a great sort of NSA glossary. So you can go up there and look, you know, your words that, what they, what they mean to ordinary people and then what they mean in NSAEs. So when you say, you know, acquisition, well actually it's not acquisition until someone has really looked at it even though we've got it all in a huge database and um, various, various clever ways of, of saying things that, um, Normal people would call lies, but that uh, are you know technically accurate if you have the dictionary. Um, so before we go, <laughs> it occurs to me. Uh, Siobhan yesterday said that uh, as as we were uh, <clears throat> as we were uh, talking about uh, getting ready, he said, "Well, I, I, you know, I'll make some brief remarks." Although I'm really much more used to asking questions than 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 speaking, and it occurred to me uh, having four sort of incredible national security reporters. It's a bit presumptuous to assume I will come up with better questions than they themselves would ask, since that is what they do. Um, so I do want to just sort of stop and invite them to, to direct questions to each other if they have any. Uh, and certainly I have no shortage uh, if, if they don't. Anyone have a question for a, federal, a fellow panel? Of each
3: other. I just meant we of people who actually know something. We ask them questions. No, but no offense to the panel. panel. What y'all working on? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm not used to talking with my colleagues when there's no alcohol. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> well, don't worry, I have, I, have, uh, I have plenty. And if you think of any, feel free to uh, to chime in. Um, so let me just actually follow up on on uh, some of the stories that I found most interesting. Um, so obviously, this is, I guess, primarily for, for uh, Bart and also Spencer. So one of the very earliest stories uh, to come out, right after the Verizon story, uh, bulk order story was, an uh, expose on PRISM so in, in the Washington Post and then very quickly also in the Guardian, um, which is the program under FISA 702, the kind of bulk surveillance program uh, targeting international uh, intelligence targets that works through partnerships with basically all of the major uh, tech platforms uh, to get access to both stored and uh, and real-time content. And we've learned a lot less, in, in some sense, about that program than we have about, uh, about the bulk call records program. There was an initial dispute about whether this program involved direct access to these companies' servers or something more, let tar- say, whether the government actually had uh, kind of total, total access to everything there or whether there was some kind of sandbox that they had more limited access to um, later... Uh, began to come out that this, this partnership may also have involved re-architecting, at least on the part of Microsoft, um, to enable Skype, which people widely believed to be secure, encrypted end-to-end, so that in fact it would be less secure, so that it could be intercepted. Uh, and so I, I guess I wanted to follow up there and say, how has your understanding of what PRISM is and what its significance is evolved since that initial story?
2: Well, there are a couple of things I would point out about uh, PRISM. And here's a, a bit of the, uh, the inside story. Uh, it's the practice of the Washington Post to talk to the government about uh, information that we obtain before we publish it, if it's uh, sensitive material. So I had long conversations uh, with the government before our story ran. Uh, and there were certain things in the PRISM slides that were probably indiscreetly included and unnecessary to the purpose of the briefing and that 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 uh, I think raised quite legitimate security concerns. Uh, and we quickly agreed that that would not be in the story, and it turns out the Guardian made substantially identical decisions without any mutual consultation. Uh, but the thing that the government most wanted us to remove was the names of the nine companies. And the... The argument, roughly speaking, was uh, that we will, we will lose cooperation from companies um, if you expose them in this way. And my reply was, that's why we uh, expose them. Not, 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 in, not in order to cause a certain result or to lose their cooperation, but if the harm that you are describing consists of uh, reputational or business damage uh, to a company because the public doesn't like what it's doing or you're doing, that, that's the accountability that we're supposed to be promoting. Uh, and what you've seen is uh, that companies that previously had very little incentive to fight for disclosure uh, because uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't their information that was being uh, collected and because there was no market pressure are now, because they're suffering business damage and reputational harm, pushing very, very hard uh, in public debate and in in lawsuits to disclose more about how the collection program works and what they're disclosing and what they're not disclosing and what the process is, all of which under uh, the uh, current FISA orders, they're not allowed to talk about. And so what you've seen is some disclosure leads to uh, market-based forces uh, that promotes more disclosure. I, I'll stop there. I want to monopolize this.
1: Yeah, I want to jump in on, on that point that you made, Bart, because uh, the market question of this is really a tremendous one and will probably um, have some implication uh, for when uh, the courts, possibly even including the Supreme Court, ultimately take up the question of, uh, in a different context, not on prison but on, on, a, on the bulk phone records collection program, whether there is, in bulk, a reasonable expectation of privacy around metadata as opposed to around content. Because right now uh, they're relying on, on a, a late 70s case called Smith v. Maryland, which is not really factually uh, comparable to, to what we are seeing, but is still nevertheless legally controlling. We did a follow-up story on PRISM uh, that that focused substantially on the NSA's relationship with Microsoft and then and Skype, which Microsoft purchased. Um, which, which went into um, a great deal about how uh, when there needed to be patches on Microsoft and Skype products, um, the NSA knew about these things. And, and, and you could see how um, tools and backdoors into certain things sort of could take shape about that. What's, what's really been remarkable is then subsequently seeing how the companies um, not just, you know, desperately want to uh, have more information disclosed uh, about, you know, perhaps any resistance they put up, but really how they were compelled to do this. Um, and if you look at uh, a historical document, uh, a draft Inspector General's report from the NSA uh, written um, in 2009, it sort of gave, uh, you know, Bart did a great story about this. We published the document. Um sort of the what you might say like the NSA's internal history or at least a version of its internal history of, of how this variety of, of content and metadata collection programs took shape it, it was it used to be known under the umbrella under the umbrella stellar wind um, you found if you read into the sections um, deep into the report about the interactions with telecommunications companies it was sort of difficult to tell which company was what, but, you know, people who've studied this stuff after a while could get a sense of it. After the New York Times in 2005 initially published the what, what's come to be known as the, you know, warrantless surveillance story, um, many of those companies approached the NSA and said, well, now that this is you know, come out here, can you come up with a mechanism to compel us to cooperate? So basically, you, you had a sense amongst important telecommunications companies that their customers would be really upset at them if they found out that uh, their data was being used in such a way and being turned over to the government uh, without, without a warrant, without um, individual suspicion of wrongdoing, and their response was make us do it. And now you're seeing many of, many of these companies, internet as well as telecommunications firms, trying to disclose more... Um, or have the government disclose more about how they were compelled. And if there is actual disclosure on this, and there are you know, some cases in the FISA court where that disclosure is currently being mandated, it will be fascinating to see what the scope of that sort of uh, compulsion was like and if there was this kind of kabuki dance that the 2009 NSA Inspector General Draft Report suggests. Can
4: I say one thing about <coughs> the PRISM uh- story and sort of how my views on it have evolved in a way that I haven't seen discussed publicly. Um, so we all remember, you know, there was that first double set of stories with the portrayal that the NSA had direct access and, there's, and immediately the companies pushed back and said, no, that's not true. And there seemed to be sort of this conventional wisdom form, no, that part was overstated or the slide that it was based on was misleading in some way and i certainly shared that view that that had um, been you know a mistake but the uh 2011 fisk ruling that was declassified had which was about upstream communications and the fourth amendment violation which was part of the you know the the about the search stuff that they were doing had a footnote about the scale of communications that are <coughs> collected under 702 in the united states and it said something like of the 250 million communications picked up a year, you know, only about 10% or so are upstream of the sort that was problematic in that, which m- means that over 200 million communications a year are being collected uh, through Prism, I guess, downstream communications, directly from the communications companies. That is a huge amount of messages. And so the, it's hard for me to envision How it would work, I mean even if you talk about, you know, there could be a thousand messages a year from one target, right? But still two hundred million. It's hard to envision that there are there's meaningful human review at the companies. And we'll see more maybe if, if they win their fight. To declassify more about how this all works. and that, So this is purely speculative and should not be taken as more than that. But I don't see... You know, the the fear is, well, NSA is just rooting around, has the ability to root around indiscriminately and unfettered, and there's nothing really to stop them from abusing that power. And uh, the answer is, well, no, they're, it's just like receiving any one-off request for law enforcement assistance. We look at it and... Uh, if we make sure, then we reject it if it doesn't make sense. But if they're sucking out 200 million a year, I don't see how, that, how they can be checking at the company level for each target request. And so you combine that number with what was apparent from the beginning based on uh, Bart's story and, and Glenn's story, which was the, that each of these companies had specific dates in which they quote, joined the program and it looks like there's something more there still than this is just like any other receipt of a request for law enforcement information.
0: But that's actually, I mean, that's an excellent point, right? There's, there, so, obviously, if you're just complying with targeted orders for content, there's, I mean, you don't need to join a program to do that. You just need to get a court order. Um, so, it, it is, it is a question what, what exactly joining. Entails beyond uh, beyond just complying with court orders. That's right, you know,
3: Just one one small note too. I I have found it interesting in questioning um, government officials, sort of about checks and safeguards and things like that, especially when it comes to. Uh, these programs, either the the upstream one, Tapping the Internet Backbone, which is working with telecommunications companies, or the downstream ones like Prism, and they say, well, but, you know, the the general counsels at these companies also provide a check, and um, you know, I mean, I just, I think that that's an interesting element of it that we haven't really um, fully, I guess, unpacked or appreciated as sort of the role of the general counsels in all of this, because at least to their mind, they see it as a... um, some sort of significant
2: check on it all. Yeah, Charlie made some interesting points, but since he did uh, join the collective wisdom that uh, the, the stories uh, that talked about direct access were wrong, For a um, while. I'll, I'll note that uh, uh, the Washington Post has not corrected that story. I don't believe a correction is merited. Uh, direct means, uh, has, several, has several meanings, and they actually vary by company. But the conceptual distinction is, um, are they collecting information in transit as it crosses you know, the pipes of the Internet uh, and having to put it back together again? Or are they going uh, to the data at rest on the servers uh, at Microsoft and AOL and, and uh, Facebook and so on? Uh, so direct means that, means getting the data at rest from company servers. Uh, the, uh, the point about joining the program and about the, uh, the numbers of, of, of collections and Human Review uh, also suggests that any, any company efforts to suggest that the, uh, the company lawyers are examining each individual data pool uh, and, uh, and assessing whether it meets uh, certain standards of uh, reasonableness or individual suspicion. That's not the way the program works. The whole point of the program is that you don't need individual suspicion, and reasonableness is, is, grant, is, is granted – once a year on a programmatic level by the court. There is no court order saying, well, based on the following information, you can go get BART's content. Uh, there, are, there were, um, on a given day in April, when this, these slides were presented, 45,000 selectors, which are search terms, uh, that were sent uh, and you know, to multiple companies, uh, and this results in you know, much larger numbers of communications being collected. There is no possibility... Uh, that company lawyers could be reviewing each of these in any meaningful way other than that uh, that the mechanism of uh, data retrieval complied with the court's uh, broad general order. Uh, and finally, we do know from documents that in most cases, uh, the government has placed government equipment on company property for the purpose of... Uh, of uh, Requesting and retrieving the information from the servers. So, if you mean that uh, there's no, you know, sort of direct copper wire that goes from Fort Meade into the servers of a particular company, that is probably true. Uh, that is, I, I would say that is true, uh, although we don't have definitive information on it. But if it's going from Fort Meade you know, to a black box on company property, which in turn is is going into the company's server, I don't know that there's any meaningful difference.
0: Also, I'll channel my friend uh, Kevin Bankston, uh, see he here, uh, just to note that there was this huge sort of fuss over whether, you know, what direct access meant vis-a-vis Google and Facebook and Yahoo. Um, it doesn't seem to be much question that, that they have exactly that with respect to the fiber optic pipeline of the internet backbone, And so, which is, which is in, in a way, a kind of huge and significant architectural shift from, you know, here's a warrant, this is the content we want, to we have a big black box on the pipe and we'll... Get the content we think we're authorized to get oh, actually sorry
2: there is one more important point i think there are differences among companies uh I, I know that there are uh and if you think about this these are vastly complex systems so that you know any one of those companies uh has more data uh, than ever existed in the history of the world uh, before a few years ago when, when prism started uh gmail uh was in beta twitter didn't exist facebook was still uh had graduated harvard even if its uh, founder hadn't, uh, but it was still limited to university campuses. uh, And just in that period, there's been this sort of unbelievable explosion of data. The systems are so complex that they require considerable company assistance or foot dragging in order to connect them up to the NSA. And I think the companies have varied in their approaches. uh, And I, I think Google has rightly stated that it resisted sort of fulsome cooperation more than most of the others did
0: that's that's an interesting thing to contemplate which is given the joining dates these are often services that have been built from a very early phase in their development with participation with nsa in mind just before we throw to audience questions um I, i do want to just stop and sort of contemplate the effect of the surveillance architecture on the practice of journalism itself uh, we have an administration that has prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act than all previous administrations combined. We know that uh, the power to surveil metadata um, has been turned on the Associated Press in order to identify leakers. And so I'm wondering if anyone just wants to comment on how their own ability to communicate with sources has been altered over the last uh, months or or year. Um, I'm going to not answer Julian's question, um,
1: but, but make a a sort of broader point uh, that often gets kind of overlooked, um, and especially because, in many ways, journalism can be somewhat of an opaque uh, fraternity itself, um, often needs to get made. We are now seeing the overwhelming ease with which journalists can be treated as, in the NSA sense of the word, targets. And many, if not most of us, I would suggest, do not have much of a technical background. Most of us in our daily lives, outside of a very small um, and extremely technically sophisticated group, do not realize just how much of a digital footprint we leave on a day-to-day basis. Now, one answer to this that you've, you've kind of seen from the intelligence community and its advocates is that, well, if you didn't want that information to be viewable, you wouldn't be on the internet, now would you? You wouldn't be communicating over voice and text and so forth, now would you? And that that seems to me a rather exotic explanation of how we live in the 21st century and a rather generous interpretation of how optional, in the meaningful sense of the word, it is to not make use of all of these telecommunications tools that exist. And given the sensibilities involved and the extreme delicacies involved in doing investigative reporting. As an industry, I don't think many of us have come to terms with the full implication of how much information we just leave in the ether that we just assume is protected.
0: Anyone else? Well,
3: um, two points, one on your recent point and then one on the one that you just, that you made previously. Um, I actually don't know how much these revelations have really affected you know, communications with sources, I think that, you know, people who have been following um, this stuff on and off over time have kind of taken precautions for a while. Um, so I don't know that this, this creates a unique reason to do that, but maybe just to be more aware. Um, I did want to make one point actually, because Julian uh, talked about sort of direct access to the, to the telecommunications company for the internet backbone stuff. Um, my understanding is actually that it is um, consciously indirect and they have uh, come up with an arrangement that's a two-stage filtering process. So NSA gives parameters to a telecommunications company um, you know, for the stuff that, that they believe is most likely to contain foreign intelligence information. The, the telecommunications company then feeds a stream of data, could be quite a large stream uh, fitting those parameters, to NSA. NSA then does its own filtering against its selectors, and then, um, you know, gets rid of the stuff that it it doesn't think is relevant, and then keeps the stuff that it does think is relevant. So um, I think that from the government's perspective, they feel that 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 provides some additional level of protection. However, um, we certainly saw in some of the the FISA court um, uh, rulings that came out, you know, obviously there was a lot of wholly domestic stuff that was in there. Um, And... In addition to that, the telecommunications companies do have, I mean, the, the systems are set up to just follow NSA parameters. It's not like the telecommunications companies are evaluating every time NSA says send us a stream that looks kind of like this.
0: Uh, actually, I, w- I want to leave some time for, uh, for, for at least a few questions from the audience. So uh, if we can get the, the mics down, we'll try and take just maybe two or three uh, before we head to lunch. Um, as uh, Jim reminded everyone, um, within you know, 10 or 15 seconds, your voice should start rising to indicate um, a query being articulated. Uh, let's go to Chris Seguyan, <laughs> who I've just de-anonymized. I apologize. <laughs> Thank
2: you. So since we have this great panel of, of national security journalists, some of you have been using encryption for years. I'm not going to out who those people are. Some have been, been using <laughs> encryption for years, and some of you are more recent arrivals to the crypto club. Um, even though you've been covering national security for, for decades, um, and so what I'm hoping maybe you can just briefly um, talk about is uh, how your views about the use of encryption by journalists have changed over the past six months and whether you think your other colleagues who work in the same space are equipped to to, to come to where you are now and whether you are where you feel you need to be. Uh, I am one of the tin hat crowd uh, uh, and I have an actual tin hat from a recent conference in my bag. Uh, but yeah, for quite a few years, so probably a decade or more, I've kept my data at rest, my notes encrypted. Uh, I have uh, been capable of and eager to communicate encrypted uh, with sources when they're willing. But they're, uh, and I know you've you've hammered pretty hard on. Uh, uh, this profession uh, for failing to uh, use this stuff, and I think one, I think it has a place because I'm doing it. I think it's important, and you know, more recently, uh, a couple of years ago, I started adding anonymity tools to that because it's the metadata. Uh, it's not the content. If you're if you're if if they're trying to out your source, uh, first of all, communicating in an encrypted way because it is rare uh, it draws attention. We now know also that uh, that under the rules of minimization, for when NSA collects content um, incidentally, um, it's allowed, there's an exception to the five year discard rule, which says that they could keep encrypted stuff as long as it takes to decrypt it, which could be indefinitely. Uh, that is to say, the US government, when, not just the NSA, when it's doing investigations, does not acknowledge the legitimacy of uh, any technology that that uh, is designed to prevent it from learning what it wants to learn you know, when it has a, what it regards as a valid purpose. So uh, you don't solve the uh, who's talking to whom problem, which is the problem when you're trying to protect sources uh, with encryption alone. Uh, and there, there, I could count on one hand the number of people whose only electronic communications with me ever uh, have been both anonymous and encrypted. Uh, that's that's too. Snowden is the sort of the hundred years storm on that. If I hadn't known how to communicate with him, in a, in very highly secure ways, uh, then I wouldn't have talked to him at all. Uh, that was the, that was the only choice. Uh, uh, and uh, I guess I'd say one last thing. Technology helps. You want you want um, as you have often said to me. You want uh, you want sort of layers of security, and you have to think about what threat to uh, your security you're you're uh, trying to guard against. Uh, but I guess what has changed for me ultimately, uh, in in, uh, in light of the Snowden revelations, is uh, I, I've I've lost confidence that there is any degree of technological uh, sort of you know work that you could do um, if you're not. You know, working from a SCIF, a uh, secure compartmented information facility uh, owned by the U.S. government, There's that there is any technological set of steps I can take once I become, in particular, the target of interest of the government, that uh, they don't break down the wall of encryption. They simply go around it, and they're very, very good at it. In fact, uh, there is 0% chance that I could protect myself from surveillance if, uh, if a sophisticated opponent is, uh, is determined to put resources into me. And if there's a leak investigation, it won't be the NSA, it'll be the FBI, but using substantially the same tools that can do that.
0: And uh, Let me try and take one more, uh, just before we, we head to launch. Uh, right there.
5: So, um, um, hi, thanks. Uh, my name is Andrea Pesaurus, and I'm a Wall Street bank analyst. Um, so um, this is a little hardball. Um, uh, and and I don't know that Eamon Javers is somebody that either you're acquainted with, but uh, and as an investigative journalist, I mean me. But he's he's attempted, I think, in the past to come out, um, you know, with stories from whistleblowers. There are a few of us who've, you know, been under the heavy hand of the NSA for a while and have attempted to. Get some kind of pushback against them, but as Mr. Gelman admitted, that there's even if yourselves are targeted. And so, um, you know, what kind of research do you do when um, there's a significant, the Black Ops budget was uh, disclosed by Catherine Austin Fitz when she found it um, during the Bush administration, but I think she's been public for about 15 years with the Black Operations budget. Granted, that was on um, drug run, CIA drug running, um, but there's lots of other ways that DARPA and these other kind of sp- Spending, so what kind of research do you folks do, and or how do you thwart or how do you handle the oppression and the heavy hand of the NSA um, attempting to um, impede or um, thwart uh, you people from coming out with these stories? I mean they've surfaced time and again, and now we're finally getting traction, it took Snowden, who was at CIA and NSA to come out on this.
2: Hello. I, mean, I don't be the only you know i i there there's been an enormous amount of very productive accountability reporting on national security for a very long time uh and uh, without a snowden we found out about uh, warrantless surveillance we found out about uh cia secret prisons we found out about uh, about torture we found out about you know, sort of, uh a, a very wide range of of stories and also you know stuff that isn't quite at that level of explosiveness, but that exposes what's going on behind the scenes in the national security field dozens of times a year. So I, I wouldn't agree that uh, that collectively news media haven't done that pretty darn well. And I can say from my own experience that the suspicion that some people have that uh, the government somehow intimidates us um, into not doing the stories, it just, I mean, it just isn't the case. I mean, it just doesn't happen.
0: Well, thank you again. Please thank our panelists. And uh, join us for lunch and uh, remarks from Justin Amash.